1: From Law Hub, this is I Am the Law, a podcast where we talk with lawyers about their jobs to shed light on how they fit into the larger legal ecosystem. In this episode, Derek Toquez interviews a county prosecutor about his rare arrangement of working part-time with a private practice on the side.
0: Support comes from Seton Hall University School of Law in Newark, New Jersey where you can enroll full-time or in the Weekend J.D. program. In the heart of New Jersey, with proximity to New York City, Seton Hall is dedicated to your outcomes, evidenced by high employment and bar passage rates. Its one-student-at-a-time approach supports you throughout your time in law school. Their flexible, hybrid Weekend J.D. program allows working professionals to balance work, family, and law school. Learn more at law.shu.edu.
1: Support also comes from the University of Idaho College of Law, and its two locations. The Moscow location has all the resources of the university's main campus, neighboring a picturesque, charming college town. The Boise location is in the heart of downtown, just blocks from the seat of government. Either Idaho Law location provides an abundance of outdoor opportunities. As the only law school in the state, Idaho Law provides near exclusive access to the courts, the legislature, and the rapidly developing business and nonprofit communities.
2: We're joined today by John Holsher, a 2011 graduate from Drake Law School and Assistant County Attorney in Story County, Iowa. Story County has about 100,000 people, which is significantly larger than where you took your first job as a prosecutor right out of law school. What I find most interesting is that you did that part-time and worked in private practice on the side. How common is that arrangement in Iowa?
3: I believe it's uh, fairly common. Most uh, Iowa counties are pretty rural, uh, rural. And so, in order to really kind of attract and maintain prosecutors in those counties, a lot of times the county attorney will decide to be part-time uh, versus full-time. Part of it's budgetary for the county and just you know simply not busy enough really to maintain a full-time prosecutor. So
2: that's sort of the opposite of the stereotype we get from legal TV shows where the you know prosecutors are swamped and understaffed. This is a situation where You actually, in that county, maybe only need somebody part-time or part-time in addition to, you know, a full-time prosecutor.
3: There are various arrangements throughout. Uh, Some counties have just the county attorney uh, who's full-time, and then they will also employ a part-time county attorney as well. Typically, in the counties uh, that have either the one to two county attorneys, and they're doing everything, not only just the criminal prosecution through... Uh, juvenile court, but also any of the civil representation from the county as well. So, the county's acquiring property, or you know, engaging in various contracts or anything like that. The county attorney handles all of that. So, in the more rural counties, that uh, you put on a lot of different hats, and, and then the more urban counties, uh, you're able to get more specialization through, you know, focusing on you know criminal law or even specific areas of criminal law. Uh, And then also the juvenile and civil representation as well.
2: So this arrangement almost sounds like the setup of, you know, an exam question for a professional responsibility class when you're wearing these multiple hats. Can you talk a little bit about sort of what limits you have on your private practice when you're also working at the same time as a prosecutor?
3: The ethical rules uh, and the prosecutorial standards prevent uh, any prosecutor from ever taking on any sort of criminal defendants uh, anywhere within the state. An example of that, kind of the difference between that and a a magistrate uh, that we have in Iowa is that a magistrate is able to uh, still take on criminal defendant uh, uh, representation outside of the county that they are the magistrate in. But as a prosecutor as a county attorney uh, you're not allowed to take any any criminal defendant representation anywhere throughout the state it can create some issues when I was there I had like just a couple clients that I was representing uh, on my private practice that eventually became defendants depending upon the situation I would either conflict myself out of the civil re- representation and encourage them and have them find a different uh, attorney to represent them. Or the flip side, uh, we would bring in a uh, special prosecutor to to prosecute the case. Typically, that'd be from a county attorney from a neighboring county that would come in and uh, usually agree to prosecute the case. I think that's a pretty common agreement throughout most of the rural counties. Um, if anything comes up, kind of neighboring county attorney will, uh, will typically come in and uh, help you out when needed. It was pretty rare for that to happen, but it is an issue uh, that would come up and and occasionally. And as long as you're diligent about it, you usually no issues with it.
2: The next thing that I am curious about is how this works in terms of scheduling, because I imagine, you know, even with normal legal practice, there's always a lot of variation in schedules, just, you know, workflow. And so how do you make that work with two different legal jobs?
3: That was kind of the hardest part about it. And one of the reasons why uh, I left was because, at least for me, I felt it was hard to really generate a large private practice because of the fluctuations in the county attorney side. In my old job, I was responsible for what we'd call indictable misdemeanors uh, and the lowest level felonies. So a lot of drunk driving charges, low-level thefts, and uh, lower-level assaults, that fluctuated greatly. And so that fluctuation really, for me, uh, kind of prevented me from really taking on a lot of clients. Uh, The scheduling part of it was was never really an issue. It was more really of a time issue. And the judges around there understand; they know everybody, and it's a pretty small legal community, so they are usually fairly willing to work with you if you have scheduling conflicts. What made it easier was for the county attorney for the prosecution work. You would have court service days, so you'd have in our county. We would have a judge there every Friday, and he'd be there pretty much just the morning. So that's when you had all of your court work. Uh, So if there's any arraignments, motions to be argued, anything like that, everything was done on Friday morning. And then we had jury trials once a month. Because the criminal, the prosecution side was consistent uh, on those days, you just knew to schedule yourself outside of those days. The actual like scheduling part never became too much of an issue. It was just I was always concerned about spreading myself too thin and really taking on a large volume of uh, civil cases because you simply never knew when you suddenly might just get a really big, you know, time int- intensive criminal case that you would need to devote
2: yourself to and take yourself away from
3: uh, your civil responsibilities and
2: vice versa. And so what type of work were you doing in your civil practice?
3: Uh, family law mostly, a little bit of civil litigation, also
2: doing a lot
3: of business entity work. Uh, we would, there were a lot of big farming communities up there, so we did a lot of work uh, setting up uh, farm corporations, LLCs, and then estates and uh, some real estate and transaction work.
2: And so how long were you in uh, your private practice? Uh, two years. So, what led you to that transition?
3: I really wanted to be a full-time prosecutor, full-time assistant county attorney. In law school, I really gravitated towards uh, criminal law. I did, uh, I did an internship uh, at the Story County Attorney's Office, a prosecuting internship. I don't know. I just never really had the drive uh, to really take on a lot of private clients. It just wasn't something I was very interested in. And like, if I had, you know, something to work on for county attorney work or versus civil work. I would always choose the county attorney work first and then get that done before going back to you know, my civil representation. So
2: so what is it that drives your interest in
3: criminal law? Uh, I mean, what really drew me to criminal law first was for whatever reason, it just clicked in my head. I first started undergrad to be an actuary. For whatever reason, I just, I just didn't like statistics and statistics just didn't click for me. And so I switched from actuarial science to into finance, and and also got a, math, a minor in mathematics. And then, yeah, when I started law school, I figured I'd go in, you know, go into some sort of business or securities law of some kind. And I don't know, that stuff just found I just found it to be incredibly boring. But for whatever reason, my criminal law class, everything just clicked, and it just uh, stuck with me, and I found it very interesting. And I so I kept going, you know, deeper and deeper in it, and the more I, you know, learned about being, you know, a public defender versus prosecutor, uh, I just found myself more and more drawn to being a prosecutor. I don't know if it's just the elemental nature of it; it's kind of, uh, kind of like a math formula almost, and, uh, for me, and it uh, just kind of works in my head for whatever reason. And also, too, I mean, you have the basic requirements; it's a good job that you have, and it's a good job security. Usually, you know, pretty good paycheck and good benefits, too. So that always helps.
0: Support comes from Vermont Law and Graduate School. Vermont Law and Graduate School empowers students to dream big. It welcomes and shares passions for social justice, the environment, criminal justice reform, and so much more. At BLGS, realism and idealism collide. Together, students and faculty positively transform the world around them. From an accelerated two-year JD to an online hybrid JD, VLGS offers innovative programs where you can learn at your own pace. To learn more, please visit permontlaw.edu.
1: Support also comes from Albany Law School. Albany Law School is committed to increasing access to the legal profession. Albany Law's online FlexJD delivers all the benefits you'd expect from an institution that's been educating future lawyers and leaders since 1851. With one in-person session per year, you'll complete most of your work online, giving you the flexibility you need to earn your law degree when and where it works for you. To find out how you can begin your journey to earning a JD, visit albanylaw.edu today.
0: Support also comes from Baylor Law School, the smallest and oldest law school in Texas. Baylor Law has three entering classes, 15 tracks of study, strong bar passage and employment rates, robust scholarship offerings, numerous clinics and joint degree programs, and a focus on preparing excellent and ethical lawyers. Visit the Baylor Law website to learn more and to apply for free to the spring, summer, and or fall entering classes.
2: All right, so when you moved to Story County and took on the full-time prosecution job were you doing similar work as you had in your first position or was there much of a change in the sorts of cases that you're prosecuting uh, pretty
3: similar in the part time job not only was i doing the indictable misdemeanors but also what we'd call a simple misdemeanor and like kind of small claims court stuff uh, and then a the common one particularly in story county because of the college public intoxication so when schools in session that is a pretty busy docket. And also, too, uh, we like to have a prosecutor dedicated to it because you're kind of the face of the county attorney's office. Having a dedicated prosecutor there, when you're dealing with traffic court most of the time, and most of the people that you're dealing with are self-represented, pro se defendants, and are expected to put on a good face and a good Uh, and give a good impression of the county, because that position is the position that has the most interaction with the general public. When I first started, that's what I did. I did nothing but uh, simple misdemeanors in the traffic court. And I was only there for a couple months. When I started here, there was a lot of turnover with attorneys uh, moving on. After I started, then within a few months, uh, my boss uh, wanted me to take on more serious charges, the indictable offenses so which also was the same a lot of the same stuff that i was doing um from before so there really wasn't a in terms of the actual cases there wasn't really a change for me between my old job and then coming into story county i mean the big difference was just in dealing with the different people new defense bar different judges that was the biggest change Um, and then also being in a bigger office going from an office of, you know, just me and the county attorney, you know, to now, I think when I started, there were 12 attorneys, I think. Um, and so that was a, that was a uh, difference too.
2: Can you talk about how having a different defense bar and a different set of judges changed what you do?
3: I mean, the big difference is in my, in the, in my first job in the more rural counties, know, I mean, there's only a handful of attorneys in the area. My old job I was in, it was called Wright County. And in the entire Wright County bar, there were seven lawyers that were actively practicing and regularly practicing within uh, Wright County. And only four of them did any sort of criminal law work. And this is just my uh, anecdotal guess, but 80% of the cases that I prosecuted in my old job were at the same four defense attorneys. You know, you got to know each other really well, you know, you were pretty friendly with each other. And. You know, it was very collegial and same thing with the judges too. You had the, we you'd have court service day and everyone would be there and you're all kind of talking and hanging out. Uh, and especially when there's downtime, you know, between hearings, you know, you're waiting for a defendant to show up to, so you can have the next hearing, you know, you're all kind of talking and hanging out juvenile court, uh, especially uh, I mean, it was the same people representing mom, dad, you know, and the kids. And so in juvenile court service days, you know everyone would typically have lunch together, the prosecutor, defense attorneys, judge, go back in and finish the day in juvenile court.
2: And how's that compared to Story County? Story County,
3: I think is a little unique in how contentious our cases can be and also dealing with the with a new round of judges too. You know, part of it there's just more people, there's more uh you know, more personalities uh, to go around. And so you don't quite build the same type of, you know, the same relationships that you did before. We have a public defender, an actual office of the public defender here in our county. And so most of the cases you're on are with the public defender, but you do get, you know, attorneys from from Des Moines and uh, from Ames and all over. So it's a little hard to build the relationships and also to the uh, director of the Public Defender's Office is well known within the area to be uh, extremely contentious, and their attorneys are extremely contentious. Like For an example, they have a policy that they will never waive uh, their right to speedy trial unless it's absolutely necessary. In my old job uh, in Wright County, the only time anyone ever demanded their right to speedy trial was if... They had a client that was still in custody you know for whatever reason could not be bonded out uh was not bonded out or were not released uh at, at their initial appearance and so typically and i think what you see in, in a lot of counties is you see people if they're not if their clients are not in jail uh then you'll see a, a waiver of speedy trial and with our public defender's office in story county it, it doesn't matter if they're in custody or not it's a, it's always demanded so that's the one easy example of kind of how it is. And, you know, other things, too, like in my old job, I never once, I think, heard the heard the word Brady. And down here in Story County, it's pretty common. Uh, you get accused of prosecutorial misconduct quite often. Uh, you get accused of, you know, of Brady violations quite often. And so um, it's something that You know, again, and just kind of a reflection of the just more contentious nature, I think.
2: And so for people who uh, might not be familiar with it, can you just briefly describe what a Brady violation was? So the way Brady works is if it's learned that the
3: prosecutor uh, withheld, intentionally withheld uh, exculpatory evidence to the defendant, that is grounds to have a case overturned. Then uh, the defendant's entitled to a new trial we get accused of that a lot uh, by our um, local public defender's office.
2: So you had mentioned work on simple misdemeanors, but it's starting to sound like you're probably doing more serious prosecutions.
3: Yeah, no, I am. Uh, when I first started, I was uh, doing only the simple misdemeanors. I've really bounced around a lot and done and prosecuted a wide variety of cases the most serious uh one was la- a year ago september a case i finally went to trial it was a it was a kidnapping and rape uh rape case that case the defendant uh, was looking at life in prison and then uh since then you know prosecuted a lot of sexual assaults robberies uh, uh major burglaries right now i have a pending uh, vehicular homicide a drunk driving accident that resulted in death i mean we in Story County, few of us actually like have a direct only like focus uh, line of cases and our simple misdemeanor guy, um, you know, focuses mostly on the simple misdemeanors, but then we'll occasionally get, you know, a drug driving charge. And then we also have a dedicated domestic abuse prosecutor. That's the grant. So she has to have the vast majority of her cases has to be domestic abuse cases. And then the rest of us pretty much just maintain a uh, general case docket.
2: And do you think maybe some of the contentiousness that you described might have to do with the seriousness of the charges, or do you see that across sort of all levels?
3: No, it, it's across all levels. It, it's really, it really boils down to a clash of personalities between my old boss and the supervisor in the public defender's office here locally. It's really where it started. Um, they've, they clashed a long time ago, and it's, this, it's just kind of always kind of carried over.
2: Uh, so, John, can you walk me through sort of the steps that you go through with the prosecution and especially how you decide which cases to prosecute?
3: So, uh, in the vast majority of cases that we do prosecute, we'll begin with uh, an officer making, making an arrest, then we take it over after the arrest is made. What will happen is then they will file the charges, submit to us the police reports, and then we file the formal indictment. Is how it usually goes. Your more serious charges, uh, there's more investigation that happens, and then there's typically more conversation between the prosecutor and uh, the investigating officer, and then determining the most appropriate time uh, to file charges. Depending on the case, there can be a clash between the prosecutor and the and investigating officer. So typically if it's violent crime that you're investigating, uh, you know, you weren't able to make an, a, an immediate arrest. And so there's an ongoing investigation. There's a kind of attention that, kind of, that can kind of build, you know, law enforcement wants to, you know, nab the bad guy as best, as quick as they can. Uh, and then the prosecutor always wants more and more evidence. And so you can kind of, there's a natural, uh, there's a natural kind of clash and tension there that can, that can arise. So when is a good time to take that next step? For the most part, the cases that you see all the time, you have a good sense of what your elements are and what's and what's necessary to get a, a successful prosecution out of the case. You know, it's the ones that you don't see often. So just this past fall and winter, we recently had a tax evasion case uh, that that was brought forward. You know, it's pretty rare for us to ever... I mean, I don't even know... It may have been one of the first ever tax evasion cases that we really prosecuted in Story County. It's just rare for for us, especially on the state level, to see any real tax evasion prosecution. So the case is assigned to me and and the the investigation was. And then so what I did was you you talk with uh, the investigator. He sends you everything that he has. You you get all that first. And then he tells you kind of what what his idea, what code sections uh, you were looking at. And so then what I do is I look at those same code sections and you break it down uh, elementally. You know, you you read the section and then you try to figure out uh, what your elements are and what you need to prove. Uh, sometimes if you can't figure it out from the code section or if it's not real clear, uh, you can pull up. We have access to the Iowa Bar Association's standardized uh, jury instructions. And you can look there to see if, to see if they've broken it down and uh, what the elements are. And then you kind of just, you plug it in kind of. You look at, so what I do at least, you look at the elements and then you start looking through the police reports and you start plugging in what information you have from your investigation and plug it in to see how it fits within, uh, within the elements. Okay. So what if you don't have enough evidence for each element? you know, then you got nothing, then you can't go forward, no matter how strong your evidence might be on one element. If you don't have any evidence for your third or fourth elements, then, you know, you're done. You you can't go forward. You can't really create a mathematical formula for, you know, knowing when there is enough. It's more of a reaction or maybe not necessarily a reaction, more of a, more of a judgment call based on prior experience and you know, knowing the people involved and what it will take to get to get you over that hump to a successful prosecution, we've also been able to maintain and create a good uh, working relationship with local law enforcement agencies. They all understand that you know simply because a charge is filed, that doesn't mean the case is ever is over. That investigation can continue to go on. You know, if it's from an agency that we're not typically uh, working with uh, on a regular basis. So, like on this tax evasion case. The investigator in that case was a state agent their office is out of des moines and so i had never met him before but you know we had a conversation at the start of it that simply because the charges are filed you know that doesn't mean i'm not going to ask you to hunt down something more or figure out something else as the case is going on and so we always make sure that that is established right away we will continue to be looking into and following up with things as the case progresses through the prosecution so And that's evidence that would even help or hurt the case. It's always important to make sure we're continuing to follow up with that.
2: Is there a part of the process that you find particularly appealing or that sort of, you know, had that just innate interest for you?
3: I think it really boils down to the nature and what is expected of the prosecutor in the criminal justice system. The way our system works, it requires a prosecutor with a strong moral compass and a strong understanding of the law and a strong sense of justice and to make sure and always try to do their best to do the right thing. The prosecutor always uh, is to remain above the fray and above above pulling any fast ones or trying to you know sneak by anything you know that's not what the prosecutor is to do. You know a prosecutor that isn't there to just only you know. Nepes, uh, another entity, or another person, or a prosecutor that's just simply there to raise their own spotlight, I guess, is not is, is typically not what you would want. And I know our office really tries hard to to hold it to hold ourselves to that high standard. It can be very frustrating. That's probably the biggest frustration that you take from the job is the clash of personalities that you end up dealing with. Um, you know, in law school, you. You, know, you learn about all these high ideals that come from not only the prosecutor, but you know, lawyers themselves, the high ideals that they're supposed to hold themselves to, the high ideals that judges are supposed to hold themselves to. You know, you see it like I was talking about earlier with the just clash of personalities between county prosecutor and the local public defender. And you can see it in the humanness of the judges, you know, even though you know the vast majority of the time the judges are doing everything they can to uphold you know, their ideals and their responsibilities that they're supposed to take on as judges. Uh, but then you'll see it occasionally, you know, a you know, a defendant gets a far more substantial sentence than what they ever should have, just simply because the judge has had a bad day or one of the attorneys, you know, said something to make the judge mad and so he took it out on the defendant. It happens, it's rare, but uh Those are the frustrations. And then you see it on the other side, too, that, you know, you have a defendant who, you know, deserves, you know, kind of to be locked up and deserves that punishment. But then, you know, for whatever reason, the judge just simply lets him off with, you know, the old slap in the wrist. Those are the frustrations that you have with it. You know, that's, you know, just life, you know, whenever you have the human element uh, entered into it. But what always brings me back and always keeps me going with it is it's the high ideals that the prosecutors expected to hold themselves to. And then also to the, just the work itself, how you break down information and you sort it out and you sort things kind of in a mathematical, formulaic way.
0: I Am The Law is a Law Hub production. Don't forget to subscribe and rate this show in your favorite podcast app. Thank you to our presenting sponsor, Blueprint LSAT Test Prep. Thank you also to our other sponsors, LSAT Lab, Seton Hall University School of Law, Vermont Law and Graduate School, and Baylor Law.